Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I am Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. Dr. Robert Moran is a psychiatrist and an addictionologist in Southeast Florida. Today, we're going to talk about the opioid crisis. It's a tremendous problem. It's been estimated that at least 4,000 overdoses have occurred in the state of Florida alone in the last year. Obviously, that number is greater throughout the country. Dr. Moran, thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure to be here. How do we begin to understand it? How do we stop it? You know, it's, it's certainly a complicated, there are certainly many thoughts about how it worsened over the past 20 years or so. There has been increased in the number of prescription opioids in an effort to really be aggressive in the treatment of pain. For quite a long time, it was thought physicians really did not treat pain as aggressively enough as we should have been. And so there was a push to, to be more attentive to this. And I think most physicians meant well by being able to provide pain relief to patients. But I think it really began to reveal that quite a percentage of people have this underlying vulnerability such that when they become exposed to opioids, it reveals that the opioids can actually bring about changes in the brain that eventually reach a threshold that we now call the disease of addiction. So I think certainly what's happened with regard to just trying to treat pain appropriately, we inadvertently have contributed to the epidemic. Another thought I have about this is that we've certainly had an increase in the number of states legalizing marijuana for medical purposes, and now there's been a number of states that have legalized marijuana for recreational. And we know that marijuana has certainly increased in the concentration of the psychoactive substance, that is tetrahydrocannabinol, especially over the last 10 years or so. We know that marijuana is often a gateway drug that people who go on to develop addictions usually start with, and then the typical pattern is to move from marijuana to perhaps cocaine or ecstasy, other types of stimulants, and then eventually to opioids. So I wonder if the greater prevalence of marijuana use has also contributed unwittingly to the opioids. From what I understand that you're saying, there is a genetic predisposition and that exposure to the chemical, be it whichever drug the person is using, it triggers, it exacerbates, it brings alive a undercurrent propensity towards the disease. Could you talk a little bit more about the disease of addiction? We're learning more and more. The research in the addiction field is just booming. We know now, certainly, that addiction is a brain disease. Now we are beginning to understand the neurobiology. So when the individual who has a vulnerability, and that's really important to understand, and that is that not everyone who uses on a regular basis goes on to develop addiction. Addiction means that the brain is now different. When that person with a vulnerability, either conferred upon him or her by genetic and or early adversity, environment such as neglect or abuse, that person begins to experience euphoria, not something that everyone experiences. And after continued use, the brain attempts to adapt to having that substance around. Those neuroadaptations actually are changes within various circuits. The circuits that subserve the following functions, judgment, executive function, impulse control, mood regulation, anxiety tolerance, motivation, learning and memory. 
we see circuits of the brain that are responsible for these functions. So circuits are no longer functioning optimally. Functional MRIs, for example, can show decreased activity in these circuits in that individual suffering from addiction. The person who is now experiencing addiction is operating with a different brain from when he or she first started using the substance. And if somebody is having experiences of dysfunction in those parts of the brain that are responsible for making choices, for planning, for judgment, they're not going to be making healthy choices. And now we are beginning to appreciate that it's not the healthy person who is making the choice to continue to use despite negative consequences, but rather it's unhealthy parts of the brain that are driving that individual to maintain the use. And so bring to the formula all the other unfortunate things that can happen to a person if they have a undercurrent, underlying schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, whatever, it really complicates things. Absolutely. Certainly studies show that really the majority of individuals who suffer from addiction also have at least one other psychiatric illness, psychotic disorders, with severe mood disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, hyperactivity disorder, and severe personality disorders. We know that it's very important to diagnose these comorbid disorders appropriately and to develop a treatment plan that is instituted simultaneously with treating addiction. And in fact, if they're not recognized, then the likelihood of the addiction to responding to treatment is markedly reduced. Do people who have blood relatives with substance abuse problems themselves have a higher risk of developing a substance abuse problem? Is there a genetic continuation, so to speak, a, a legacy of sorts? They are, certainly because of the genetic components. Certainly, it looks like genes probably play about 50% of the role in determining vulnerability. First-degree relatives share more of those genes. Does this apply to alcohol as well as to all substances? It does, actually. And the hallucinogens, LSD, acid, mushrooms, are they, are they part of the crisis right now? Are we seeing as much of their use as perhaps in the past? Well, you know, in my experience, we tend to see hallucinogen use fairly commonly. What's interesting is something that I don't think we really see written about in any of our psychiatric books, and that is the ongoing psychosis in the individual who's been using hallucinogens, particularly when they have a comorbid bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. So, for example, I will often see someone presenting with frank hallucinations, visual and auditory hallucinations, but maintains insight. And so they're able to recognize that their brain is producing the hallucination. So they're not really psychotic. They can tell the difference between what's real and what's not, but the hallucinations will go on for months. And that's something that I think we really didn't see in the past. Generally, there could be maybe flashbacks with psychedelics or ongoing visual distortions, but not as severely as I am seeing in our practice now. And then throw in bipolar disorder with that schizophrenia and it becomes a real mess. And certainly, we don't even have good studies determining what the most effective treatments should be in these individuals. So many people are overdosing. We read about it in the newspapers every day, and a lot of families, unfortunately, experience it. Is it a new phenomenon to this particular crisis, or have we seen situations like this in the past when heroin was used widely, when cocaine was used widely? How do we address the overdose epidemic? Well, I have a few thoughts about this. Just the increase of opioid use will result in increases in overdoses because individuals are so sensitive to the possibility of taking an overdose. I think that there are other factors involved as well. One, for instance, is the 
lack of the use of evidence-based treatments for opioid use disorder. The proper treatment of opioid use disorder, severe, is the long-term opioid agonist, either buprenorphine or methadone. Methadone being a full agonist, buprenorphine being a partial agonist. My own preference is buprenorphine. tend to see an actual repair of the brain. There are studies starting to show that buprenorphine can lead to a repair of the stress response system within the brain. We see evidence of improvement in in judgment and executive function and mood regulation and all the other functions that I mentioned earlier. We used to think when buprenorphine was first released, early 2003, that we could probably use it for a very brief detox and then help the individual's rehabilitation. Well, the studies began to show that that was absolutely not true, that it wasn't happening in a successful way and that the vast majority of people were relapsed. Now we have studies going out eight years or more looking at long-term use of buprenorphine. The vast majority of programs which actually treat opioid use disorder do not provide long-term buprenorphine maintenance. Rather, they do what has been shown not to be successful, and that is is simply detoxing over the course of five to seven days of a tapering dose of buprenorphine, leaving the individual at the end of the week with no buprenorphine, high craving, ongoing withdrawal, and a high risk of relapse, and that's exactly what the study shows. Clearly, 85 to 90% relapse rate in three months out of detox. So that doesn't work, but it's the most common practice. I think it really contributes to the overdose deaths that we're seeing. Here I, I, I blame that the field of medicine sort of abandoned the treatment and the, the vacuum was filled by, in part, by the 12-step program, but certainly the 12-step program is not a medical one. When programs started to develop that had a more formal nature to them and providing treatment, many of them actually were based on the 12-step model and doctors weren't really involved. So there really wasn't a great deal of research that was guiding the treatment. It certainly wasn't integrated into the program. So now we're left with the vast majority of programs operated by individuals with no medical background whatsoever. The idea of actually integrating the evidence-based practices, keeping up with the psychiatric literature, the addiction psychiatric literature in particular, and then integrating what we're discovering from science into the practice of everyday medicine is rather rare at a time where we need it the most. Is there a sense of who seems to be the most affected by this? Is it men? Is it women? Do we have a sense of the demographics of which group we're looking at? We certainly know that the highest age of onset is late adolescents, early adulthood, males and females. And then, of course, that's the time where the adolescent developing brain is the most vulnerable. And so uh, tremendous damage has resulted. In my own experience, we used to see more men than women. And now it's about equivalent. We see a lot in the literature, we hear a lot of discussion that medical marijuana is very unique in its ability to deal with post-traumatic stress disorder. But on a larger scale, do you see a lot of substance abuse in general associated with post-traumatic stress disorder? Oh, yes. Yes, certainly. You know, we know that early trauma already set the risk for the later onset of addiction. The research around that is pretty fascinating seeing how early trauma and even severe neglect can lead to shrinkage of parts of the brain, especially the hippocampus. And we need that for resiliency. And certainly that person is now set on a course of having a high risk of developing not only addiction, but also PTSD and major depression. And that person becomes very vulnerable exposed to those substances. We often see an effort to self-medicate, the mood dysregulation, the anxiety, so it becomes a circle. 
with the larger number of people using the substances, obviously there will be a proportionate increase in the number of women who are pregnant. I read that somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of all users are indeed pregnant at the time of their use. You have some very definite feelings about how to approach a pregnant user. Yes, certainly. I think the uh, prevalence overall of pregnant women and opioid use disorder is, is increasing. And I'd say quite a few are not being treated appropriately. Many avoid treatment for fear of what may happen. Certainly, I'm aware of certain states in the country which have strict laws against using opioids in pregnancy. And a number of women have come to our program from out of state in order to avoid some of those laws that would lead to their baby being taken away from them and then even going to jail in some cases. As we recognize that the mother is suffering medical illness, psychiatric illness, and needs treatment for both her and uh, the developing fetus, it's important to integrate the practices that research shows to be effective. The research shows that the, the pregnant woman in that case should be taking buprenorphine or methadone throughout pregnancy and probably beyond. I've seen quite a number of pregnant women go through various detox programs and they've actually had buprenorphine tapered over the course of a week, again, putting both the mother at risk because she's going to develop ongoing and worsening withdrawal that will lead her to be left. And now we also know that it's extremely risky for the fetus to be exposed to the opioid withdrawal. Are there known birth defects that result from a fetus being exposed to substances? We're talking more about opioids than others, but prenatal exposure, can you talk about that, please? Yes, we do know that it can lead to premature birth because the baby would be born lower weight than what would be considered healthy. We don't know yet about long-term cognitive effects that may occur, but certainly that's being studied. What would be the best advice from your experience, from your sitting across the desk from so many patients? What would slow down the crisis? What would stop the crisis? I need to emphasize how important it is for us to provide effective treatment. I think that given the number of treatment programs that exist, not only in this state, but in the entire country, that there have been a number of studies that have shown that the vast majority of programs do not provide evidence-based treatment. We have treatments for treating addiction, very responsive to treatment, and we're just not providing it to the degree that, that we need to. We need the medical profession to take over the care of people suffering from addiction in order to ensure that we're actually utilizing science to provide a treatment that we know to be effective. I think that would have a huge impact upon this epidemic. And the government doesn't seem to be funding it as aggressively as is necessary, and that that must be frustrating you to no end. It absolutely does, and, and, and certainly it comes from a lack of education to a large part. There's still many people in this country who, even physicians, for example, who believe that the patient suffering from addiction is actually just making a choice to continue to use. So if someone is beginning to suspect that a problem is arising, be it in yourself, in a family member, a friend, is there a rule of thumb on how to approach it? Is there a mechanism that seems to be a little bit more effective in beginning an intervention that results in a good outcome? Well, it's certainly a large question. What I often come upon is that families are not being aggressive enough. They are trying to be supportive. They're trying to provide help, but they are most times inadvertently actually enabling the disease to continue. And so my advice is that when a family member either suspects or becomes aware of 
someone, one of their loved ones using substances and possibly going on to develop addiction, that they just have to treat this as an absolute emergency. Because if, if something isn't done right then and there, the risk is very significant that that person will die very quickly. What are some of the good websites that people can go to for reliable information? Certainly NIDA, National Institute on Drug Abuse. They have some great pages for the layperson to read and be educated about substance use. And SAMHSA, the Substance Use and Mental Health Services Administration, a wealth of literature providing information about all of these illnesses. It appears that one of the best interventions, perhaps one of the best preventatives, is a very aggressive and honest intervention using as good a science as we can and being persistent in chipping away at it, looking at the cause, dealing with the medical aspects of it, and dealing with the psychological and psychosocial aspects as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Moran, for joining us. This is a very large topic, critical to this time, and we appreciate your honesty and the time that you've given to discussing this with folks. Thank you, sir. It's my pleasure.